internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I'm joined today by, of course, Erica Cantor coming to us live from her closet mm-hmm. and uh, from from the land down under, Mr. Tim Elliott, who hosts a podcast that you might have listened to two days ago in our virtual time machine, because when this airs two days ago, your show will premiere. Uh, he is the host of Inside the Tribe. How you doing, Tim? Yeah, good, Bob. How are you? Good, really good. Uh, we've, we've discussed before we turn the recorders on that... Uh, um, when we record with someone in Australia, it's it's inconvenient for everyone. No one's happy. Uh, Tim's <laughs> no one's... up past his bedtime. Erica's up before her wake time. Yep, definitely. <laughs> no, I appreciate. I appreciate being here at whatever time, Bob and Erica. That's cool with me. Whatever time, it's good being here. We appreciate it. <laughs> Very much so. Um, so you referred to us by uh, a former guest, Camille uh, Bianchi. I always get her name. Is it Bianchi? Yeah. Is that yep. pronounce it right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, she's the host of The Nurse. And is she? she's part of your, your upcoming podcast, right? She's helping you with it in some way? Yeah. Yeah. She basically is the co-writer and producer. She actually came over to the States for a while and for about three weeks and sort of scoped out a lot of stuff over there and visited community over there and found some people who'd been past members and had a great time, yeah. So all very good for her. I was stuck in Sydney writing away. But, um, no, <laughs> she's been fantastic. She did a, an unreal podcast called The Nurse, yeah, which I think you dealt you dealt with her before or you had her on your show mm-hmm. before? Yes, yes, she was on. Uh, and The Nurse was, was mm-hmm. phenomenal. Which yeah. again, uh, listeners, if you haven't checked out The Nurse, check it out. Camille did a... Fantastic job there. So how do, how do you guys know each other? She, um, I work for the Sydney Morning Herald um, and I write all sorts of stories. And she, about con men, criminals, um, shysters, grifters, murderers, you know. Um, and she had come across one of my stories from a while ago um, about a guy called Matt Klein uh, who had escaped from a cult in 2000 and I wrote about this guy in 2007, Aussie guy, and he'd escaped from a cult called the 12 Tribes, which was super controlling, really sinister, kind of Amish-like group, but far more isolated and um, controlling. And anyway, Matt, this Aussie guy, had managed to escape and I'd written a story about him. She'd seen that story and thought, well, wow, this would make a great podcast. So she got in touch with me and said, um, what do you think? Why don't, why don't we do a podcast on this? Awesome. And then uh, a podcast was born. A podcast was born. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned before before we came on, so you're, you're married. You have three three children. Did, you, did I hear you say they're all daughters? Uh, three daughters, yeah, three daughters. And, uh, and how old are they? How old are they? They're, the oldest actually is turning 20. Uh, 
in March, which is pretty freaky. I cannot believe that's happened. <laughs> yeah. um, the other one is 16 and the other one is 14, just turned 14. So, yeah, it's pretty intense. No. Do you guys have kids? Uh, I do. Uh, and I have a 16-year-old daughter and three boys. And I see now why it, it looks like you probably have in your background, maybe you like you have a go bag packed like you're ready to <laughs> bail out at any time. Um, <laughs> I, see, I see your empty closet with just hangers. Like at, yeah. at any time you're ready to dip. Yeah, it's pretty um, – I can't believe you've got three boys. How have you survived that? How old are the boys? <laughs> Uh, so I have a 22-year-old who just turned 22, and I have a 17-year-old about to turn 18, and an 11-year-old boy, all boys, and then the 16-year-old girl. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm. It, it, you know, the lighting in here is really, really complimentary because there's a lot of gray yeah. going on up here that the light kind of drowns. drowns I that, is that I actually I got a haircut just today. And I when you know when you get a haircut at our age, and I looked around me and there were piles of silver hair on the floor, <laughs> and I just thought, oh my god! What every time I get a haircut now, it's like really, you know, like really is this seriously the person I am now? Yeah. I, I the same thing. So oh, I work from home, so I generally look in a mirror maybe once a week. I have yeah. no reason to because I don't go anywhere. So when I go, I'll go get a same thing. I'll get a haircut. And I'm watching the hair fall onto my little little apron they put on. I'm like, where's all that coming from? And the really scary bit is when they, at the end they go, oh, do you want to see the back of your head? And they, they hold that mirror up so you can see the back. And the back is where it's all going on. All that gray <laughs> right, yeah, is yeah. accumulated at the back of your head. Yeah, the uh, answer to that question is no. No, I don't need Yeah, it. I don't. No, I, I can <laughs> I do without you. seeing that side of my head. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, actually, no, the podcast has been a, a brilliant um, – just a brilliant sort of distraction and a trip into an area of life that I had no idea really. I mean, I, I reported on this group in 2007 and since then I caught up with them again in 2013 when another couple escaped and mm. Matt, an Aussie couple escaped and their story was just out of control. They had been basically taken in uh, their minds had been twisted around and managed to be um, convinced themselves that they were terrible people, that they couldn't trust anybody, that basically distanced themselves from their families. They'd had a child in there, but then they, uh, their relationship almost fell apart. They were kind of taught not to trust, you know, one Mark, the husband, was taught not really to trust Rose, his wife, um, it was just so sinister what what happened, and then they ended up getting shunted around the world by the group, flown all around the world because the leaders of the group, the cult, believed that their family members were coming out to get them, coming out to get them. So they had to, they panicked and just set them off on planes all around the world to try and escape. It was a bizarre story, absolutely bizarre. The gaslighting that goes on, and so I had never heard of this cult. I don't know how I'm. It could be because I don't pay attention to true crime at all. Uh, other than yeah. the cases that I'm working on, that might be part of the reason why. <laughs> um, but the the twelve tribes cult, I had I had never heard of it before. Um, but you, what you were just from talking about, like some of that, like gaslighting that goes on. Did did anybody? Um, did either of you watch the Peacock series, A Friend of the Family? No, no. What's did, that? Did e- 
uh, it's there was also a documentary about the same case that came out a couple of year year or two ago about the Jan Broberg kidnappings where the it's it's you haven't seen this but it, but it's the this family there was this this guy that it, they were I think they were in the Mormon church and there was this guy that was like a friend of their family that just kept manipulating this family who then eventually like let him like keep taking their daughter. And he's, he's like, he took her to Mexico. He's, he, and he convinces this at the beginning 12 year old girl that she has to have a sexual relationship with him because aliens will vaporize her family if she doesn't. And that she can't touch her, you know, you can't touch her father or have a relationship with them. And it's like years of toy. And you're Mm -hmm. watching it like how, like my wife and I were watching and we're like, you're 16 now. You don't know that the aliens are not going to, but it's, it's yeah. insane. Like but the thing is, but the thing is the mind, yeah, yeah. The, the ability, especially if you've been, this group is what they call a teeth, hair, and eyeballs group. So they've got you every part of you they, they have control of. And when when you join, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people are like, well, why, why would you join a group like this? You know, what sort of idiot joins a cult? And it's like, well, nobody mm-hmm knowingly joins a cult yeah. it's not like you wake up right. in the morning and go i'm gonna i'm gonna join a group that um makes me surrender all my possessions and all my mm-hmm. money mm-hmm. and sign up for virtual slavery and to be manipulated and brainwashed and then treat my children like crap and then mm-hmm. end up uh, shunting me around the world to escape my family it doesn't work like that so these people joined a group that in the case of the 12 tribes that they believed was um all about building a utopia, kind of um, bucolic, beautiful utopia where everybody worked together, they grew their own food, they had these lovely communities all around the world. And then slowly but surely they get introduced slowly to the inner teachings and the inner teachings are much more ritualistic, much more intense than the the Disney side of the 12 tribes. When you rock up for, say, for a dinner or something, it all looks like a lot of fun. They're all playing music and the food's beautiful and all the kids are smiling and cheery. And it's kind of like, you know, six months to a year into that before they start kind of the indoctrination really switches on. And by that time, you're in. You've got, you've, in often, often cases, you've surrendered your... A lot of your money, you know, Mark and Rose, this couple we followed, they'd, they'd basically given the group most of their money. They'd given them their car. Um, they had separated themselves from their family because they mm-hmm. believed in the group so heavily. They, a lot of these people by, you know, not a long way in, like, you know, if you're thinking about leaving, say, after a couple of years, what's happened effectively is that you've, you don't. You've lost contact with your birth family. Um, you haven't worked in a legitimate business for ages. You haven't handled money because they don't allow their members to actually handle money. Uh, you don't even have a. You might not even have a phone plan anymore, or know how to rent a house anymore because you've been living in a commu- you know in a commune kind of setup. Mm-hmm. So if you suddenly decide to leave. It's like what are you what are you running to? What are you leaving for? So in often cases, people decide to stay more because they're afraid. They're more afraid of what's waiting for them on the outside and what they'll have to confront. You know, getting their lives together than 
then they know what you know the the certainty of being a part of a group that you know even though that group is really malignant and a bad a bad thing so it's yeah it's psychologically it's fascinating that's part of part of why i find it so interesting it it's very similar to like the coercive control you see in an abusive relationship yes partner. yeah, yeah it's they, a, there's like exactly, they isolate yeah. you away from your support network and they just get you to a place where and then people from the outside looking in are like you know like in the example of like a relationship you're just from the outside looking in like why would you stay with that person exactly look at, look at the yeah. horrible things they're right, doing right. and it doesn't make any sense but it's 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 just mind manipulation and coercive control Yeah, I mean, it's so. This is why I I get really frustrated with people. Like, I was talking to my brother the other day. He's like, "What sort of idiot would join this group? Like, why would you do that?" You know, and it's like you would never say that to a woman in a in an abusive relationship. You never say, "God, you're an idiot. Why did you sign up? Why did you marry that guy? Why do? Mm -hmm. Why are you going out with that guy?" Um, And it's because it's a slow process of vulnerability. You get to you find yourself in a really vulnerable space and then you get taken advantage of and you're not the person you were and it's you know it's just not as simple as saying leave or you know chastising someone for becoming a part of the group yeah yeah i feel like the isolation is such a big part of it and yeah huge they literally have it down to a science of how they can brainwash people or deprogram them by depriving them of all of these things you know oh it's fascinating it's kind of scary yeah but yeah exactly it's amazing this group i mean when i first heard about this group it never blows it never fails from my mouth they when on their property outside of sydney and it's the same with their properties around the world they they essentially they don't they don't listen to the radio. They don't watch TV. They don't read newspapers or magazines. They don't allow their children to read books that aren't approved uh, and printed on site. They homeschool. Uh, they are very rarely allowed outside the community other than to work in their own businesses. So it's not like they're just sort of let free for the day, very rarely. It's so after a while, you're living by their rules all the time. And and you don't even know it. You're being cooked really slowly in this world of um, total indoctrination. Yeah, it's, and it's very clever the way they do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, I think you said like that slow cook. It always, it's 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 a slow burn. It's yeah, little they they take away little bits at a time and manipulate little bits of time till you get to a place where you just you can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean this is really really touching thing about the couple we follow is that when they they're so in love you know when i when we talk to them even i i first met them in 2013 just after they'd got out right and they were really damaged but mm-hmm. then we hooked up with them again to follow their story you know earlier this year when we started the podcast and they were just as in love as they were when I first met them and indeed just as in love as when they said, they said, you know, when we joined this cult, we were so in love and we had this beautiful little family and we went inside to this community, which we thought would be great. And before long, we found that we were informing on one another to the, to the elders, you know, like Rose would think, God, why isn't Mark pious enough? Why isn't Mark 
following the rules hard enough? Why isn't Mark beating our children enough? Because that was one of the that's one of their central tenets. Mm-hmm. Really strict child discipline. So you know, and Mark would be looking at Rose, thinking, "Why does Rose not, you know, pray loud enough at the gatherings?" And so they'd be informing on one another. And for a couple that was so in love, you know. I, they just said it was so, years later, I looked back and thought, what became of us? What happened inside that group? Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When when Camille came to you about the about making the podcast, so you, your background is in print, right? I mean, you, you are, as you mentioned, you're, you're an award-winning journalist. You didn't mention that, but I'll mention that. Uh, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I write stories. I mean, I'm a print journalist, so I work for a magazine called Good Weekend, which is basically like the, it's kind of like the, the Sydney Morning Herald um, Saturday magazine. Mm-hmm. So it's big, long pieces, about sort of 4,000, 5,000 words long. So you really get to unpack someone's story and, you know, really fine sort of granular look at someone's life and their situation. So um, it was perfect, uh, a perfect way to explore the cult because it's just mm-hmm. the minutiae of these people, you know, the, the the little details about how they run run the group and it's fascinating. Yeah. And so when she came to you, because you've also written a book, couple books, you wrote the Bolivian Times, which you published in 2001, and uh, you wrote a memoir called Farewell to Father, uh, so coming from the, the print world, how did you have any hesitation in moving into the audio space or was it a smooth transition? No, I was terrified. <laughs> uh, I, could, I can barely operate my car, let alone operate, you know, the kind of, um, this, uh, I'm a techno moron. I've got no idea. I relied a lot on, uh, Camille to say, look. Uh, this is, you know, she introduced me to all the kind of all these different programs like Zencaster and et cetera, et cetera. But really it was the conventions of podcasting, like, you know, how how things should sound and how you write in a different way. Writing for podcasts is really interesting because it's much more broad brushstrokes. Um, you have to be much more, um, much punchier. You know, the way you write, you can't, <laughs> you know, features, you can, you know, not ramble, but you've, you've, you can string, you can explore things in a lot of depth and have a lot more nuance, I guess. But in podcasting, you let the subjects do a lot of the talking, right? So we've got a lot of people, like 50, 60 people we talk to for this pod, and they've all got their own stories to tell and in their incredible stories. And so you just let them tell the, let them drive the narrative. I reckon that's the way we really played it. And and so let's talk about the 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 cult itself. So it's called the Twelve Tribes, and it's it's based on the Old Testament or Torah stories of of there being twelve tribes in geographic regions throughout the throughout the world. And so, but this was started like in in the nineteen seventies. Yeah. Someone decided we needed to go back to the first century church and and go back to that. Yeah, it was started by a guy called Eugene Spriggs in Chattanooga in Tennessee in 1972. And Spriggs um, was a tall, charismatic, good-looking, rugged kind of football star. 
He'd been he played um, good good football at school at um, college. He'd dropped out to join the army. He then um, became a manager of a carpet factory. Then he worked at a at a, a fun fair, you know, like a fun fair, running one of the rides. Then he got married three times, divorced three times. Big character, lived a big life. And then and that was all before he was 32, his 32nd birthday. And then he her basically had a, had a bit of a nervous breakdown. He was already a big believer uh, in, in Jesus, uh, brought, up with, uh, brought up in the church. But he had a breakdown and he had a moment where he believed God spoke to him and told him he had to form a new church. Um, so he basically got up, started preaching on the street, really in Chattanooga, and gathered a bunch of young disciples around him via pretty much his charisma. And and he formed an unusual idea of of what the Bible meant and what Christianity meant to him. And like you say, it was basically that he he lost faith with the church, the established, you know, the established church and modern day religion, and he wanted to take uh, take Christianity back, way back to the first century after Christ, when you had um, a bunch of people essentially walking around um, the desert, talking to one another about God and and getting in communion and um, just beginning to form the rudiments of a church, a Christian church. But they had very little. They had nothing. They didn't have a sort of a, a Bible to cling to. They had nothing really. They were just making it up. But they were very committed. Um, it was a very lean um, sort of setup, obviously. And so Eugene was really attracted to this because it was stripped right back and it was just raw belief. And so he was really attracted to their commitment, I think. And that's what he wanted to turn his church into as well. So not surprisingly, um, the church became fairly fundamental. It got um, it got really back into a place where... Um, it was his word and his word only. He became pretty much a messianic figure. Yeah, that's great. And and then he did eventually spread it. He tried to get the church going in Tennessee, and then they ended up moving to Vermont, and then eventually it did grow across the across the globe, right? Yeah. So he 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 basically got thrown out of various. He got thrown out of um, Chattanooga because he started. Um, getting a reputation for several things. One of them was a reputation for praying, playing pretty fast and loose with labor regulations. So he, he'd get a lot of his young um, acolytes to work for him in his businesses. Um, his, um, you know, he started all these different businesses and he'd have the young, his young disciples working for him for no money. Um, but he then, um, he also started preaching in the streets. He got accused of running, basically running a cult after a while. People became scared that he was his influence was too too didactic, too too intense, that he was um, uh, taking advantage of people. So then he got kind of run out of Chattanooga and took his group, took his flock kind of all over all over the place actually, and ended up in ended up in Vermont. 
then North Carolina. Yeah, so he it's quite a it's quite a, just the story of him is an insane story actually. It's amazing. Yeah. So in the podcast which is again so this is going to air on the 30th the podcast is launching on the 28th. 28th, yeah. What what's the approach you take uh, in the podcast to tell the story? Okay, so we it's a fairly straight up um narrative and it's the most touching thing we found was um Mark and Rose, this Aussie couple that got involved in Sydney, in the in the cult in Sydney in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, spent 13 years in the group and their journey through the, through the cult was just hair-raising and remarkable and it's a story of survival that kind of boggles the mind. So we basically, the podcast follows them in their journey. They sign up, they join, they think it's great. Stuff goes pretty off the rails pretty quickly, um, and it, the podcast really just follows them through their journey um, as things get crazier and crazier. And then also, there's you know we have kind of the breakout episodes here and there where you learn about what the tribes is all about, what their theology is all about. Who who's Eugene Spriggs, um, his wife Marsha, who's she? Um, so we explore all of that. We explore their businesses. They've got a lot of businesses all around the world. They make lots of money. Um, so there's there's just so much to fit in. I mean, we have nine episodes. We probably have another <laughs> probably have another nine episodes in us. Although energy wise, I'm not sure I could do it. But um, oh, there's just so that's the approach we took. You know, like just filling its story. It's just the story is incredibly rich. You know, I just love telling it. Is uh is the cult still operating today? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> it's it's in Sydney. It's in Brazil. It's in Argentina. It's in Germany, um, Spain, the States. Like yeah, yeah. That's there's. It's not numerically. It's actually quite a small group. I think it's only about four, three thousand, four thousand people. But it's just like mind boggling the the intense amount of the command they have over the sway, the psychic sway they have over their um, followers, their members. It's quite, it's quite unlike, and I've looked at quite a few cults and I've written about religion and looked at con men and the way they manipulate people. And I'm just totally in awe of how this group manages to convince their members to do what they do. It's quite beyond me. Now they've had their share of legal troubles, right? Where places around the world have tried to um, maybe not shut them down, but I, I know there was um, in Vermont at one point there were 112 children that were taken from the group, but then given then given right back to them. Is, is there been a lot of legal trouble they faced throughout the years? Yeah, yeah. One of the, the the Island Pond raid was a big, big deal. That was kind of like a bit of a watershed moment. They uh, they had um, their main headquarters in uh, Island Pond in Vermont, and there had been rumours in the early eighties that there was odd stuff going on, child abuse, really bad child abuse. I'm talking about severely hitting children, sexual abuse, um, homeschooling, sickness, but really terrible diets in the in the in the communities. 
So there's all this bad stuff getting back to the cops. Now the cops raided after a while, finally raided the community in 82 and Vermont Social Services went in there, guns blazing kind of thing, took, yeah, took about 150 kids, I think it was. I'm trying, I can't remember the number, but took them out. Um, there was 90, that's right, 90 state troopers and 50 social service workers. It was a massive raid. So they took 112 kids out. Um, then a big legal case happened. They had to try and get their kids back, eventually got them back. But this pattern's been repeated all over the world. So in Germany, exactly the same thing happened. The, the, the cops um, discovered that they were being beaten. There was child abuse happening on the compound. They went in, they grabbed heaps of children and said, no, nah, it's not going to happen. The parents fought them for years to get the kids back, and it's a really fraught issue, you know. So the, um, they've been investigated for drug trafficking, for labour violations, um, you name it, for hit, they're being investigated currently in Australia um, for hiding the, for basically there's a lot of stillbirths that go on. It's like dead babies get born in the community mm. because of their diet's so poor. In Australia, it came to light that just recently, and this is one of the jumping off points for our podcast, that they had been burying stillborn babies on their farms right, without telling the authorities and without registering the baby's deaths. So they've just been going up into the hills, digging a hole and putting the dead babies in there. And indeed, Mark, the, the guy, one of the Mark and Rose, Rose had had a stillborn child in Sydney and she, Mark, had been forced to bury that baby in the bush. And so um, that for them was just a you know, it's a traumatic experience. So the cops currently are looking at that and they won't talk to us. There's an op, it's called Operation mm. Nanagai. Uh, they've raided the 12 tribes compound here in Sydney. They have dug up a lot of land in their farms. They've found bones, um, but the investigation's still ongoing. I know they've found bones because we, you know, we've reported on it. I've, it's been reported on here, but the cops just won't tell me anything else. Um, totally stonewall me basically and say, oh, investigation's still going, it's still going. It's very frustrating. So, yeah, this group's been, um, yes, uh, um, in the in the sights of authorities all over the world. Yeah, that, that investigation, probably the New South Wales police started in 2020, and in the year before that, here in the States, the FBI did an investigation, uh, says they in, that they released information about all kinds of bizarre allegations like the suspicious death of uh, suspicious deaths in spiritual odd spiritual rituals, but still they're still operating. Did, did you face any kind of pushback from anyone in the group when you were reporting on this cult through print media? Um, no, you know, what's really interesting about this group and it really speaks to how isolated they are and how intense they are in their beliefs. It's they don't want to, they believe that, you know, newspapers, outside media are all pretty much of the devil, right? They're the devil's making. Mm -hmm. So they, they won't even, it's very rare for them to respond. Uh, if you send them a letter, 
you know, with a list of questions. They barely, you know, we didn't, for example, we sent a massive list of questions to the headquarters in um, in Hiddenite, North Carolina. They never got back to us. Um, they're just not in the in the business of replying um, to journalists. They don't believe it's the journalists really matter. It's what's coming next in the next world that matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's another typical. Uh, it's kind of like uh, Kim Jong Un in <laughs> yeah. North Korea. Yeah. Like, like the people can't listen to any kind of media, but he surely is listening. Yeah, to <laughs> exactly. That's, that's going on. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was. I'll be interested to see if you have any kind of if if you get any kind of feedback from this when the podcast launches because it's going to all of a sudden go out on a much more global scale than the print media that you've done on the topic. Oh, yeah, I think it will. That's the nature of pod uh, podcasts, isn't it? I mean, um, the the reach, I just, you know, like the reach is incredible. So I'm looking forward to, yes, looking forward to seeing what comes forward and uh, what comes out of it all. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more stuff out there. My guess is you end up with uh, with another season on the same case because although the people in the um, in the group likely won't hear the podcast, I bet family members of people who are in the cult will be listening and and will have some stories. Oh yeah, oh definitely, yeah. They um and it was it was interesting, you know, getting pe- the really tricky bit is to get people who have relatives in the, in the cult to talk to you. So for instance, uh, Matt Klein, another Aussie guy who was a member and who got shunted off to um, Canada at one stage to work in one of the cults factories over there. His mum was for the years that he was in there terrified of speaking out against the cult to anybody, um, whether be you know a journalist or anybody really saying anything bad about them because if it got back to to the to the leaders they just they just shut off contact they just say mm-hmm. they just cut you off not nah, won't tell you where your son's gone um, move the move your fam move your son and their family around the world don't tell you where they are and that's it you don't see them again. And so, you know, mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers of people who are in the cult are terrified of saying anything out of or speaking out of turn. That was one of the saddest things as well. Yeah, that's crazy. So uh, the podcast will, once once this airs, will have launched on November 20, uh, 28th. So what is the plan? Are you releasing episodes weekly or are you releasing them all at once or what's the, yeah, I what's think, the plan for release? I think the plan is to release the first two in like together so people can get a good good old hit of the of the show up front and then it's every week after that i believe okay so uh listeners check it out on uh just the the first two episodes are already available his name is tim elliott the podcast is called inside the tribe it's one of the rare opportunities we have to catch up in real time you can check out episodes one and two right now and then follow along the journey. Sounds like you have seven more episodes to go for at least this this series on the on the twelve tribes. Oh yeah, there's the you know and like yeah seven more episodes after the first two yeah, and um, 
Yeah, I just think we're already compiling stuff for another for another bunch of episodes for sure. Awesome. Well, check it out, people. Could be your next big true crime binge. And Tim, thank you so much for joining us uh, at midnight. I'm sure those girls have you wore out, and it's way <laughs> past your bedtime. And uh, Eric and I need more coffee. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna go uh, go and pass out now. Hey, thanks so much, guys, for having me on. It's just a brilliant opportunity. Uh, we appreciate you coming on, and good luck with the show. Yeah, thank you. Bye. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Kelly Barron's Brink. Our production manager and co-host is Erica Cantor. Music and show artwork was created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com and episode artwork is created by John Hayes. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is truecrimebinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. Make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. And thank you so much for listening. And make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge. (laughs) 